Plundergrounds, episode 138, Call-Ins and Roses and Thorns, part 2. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. I got some call-ins this week, and they're so good that I'm going to play them without comment. The first is from Joe Richter of the Hindsightless podcast. He also does the actual play Wheel or Woe podcast. Uh, both of those you can find in my show notes or just with a little bit of Google searching. Joe is talking about firearms in fantasy, and he mentions a book and a spoiler for a book. It's a fairly light spoiler, in my opinion, but uh, even though it's it's fairly major in the book, I think it's it, he doesn't tell the outcome. And In any case, the spoiler actually made me want to read the book more, not less, but if you are averse to spoilers, you can kind of skip past that part. He only leaves a 60-second message here. Um, after that... There is uh, a number of messages from Josh Beckelheimer talking about world building. Uh, Josh has some great points to make on that. And uh, like I said, I'm just going to play that without comment. So here we go. Hey, Ray, it's Joe. Episode 137 was awesome as always, man. Your advice on involving players in world building was spot on. I'm all about it all the time. And the thing your buddy said about why would there be guns in a world full of magic? I, I pretty much totally agree with that. Like, I'm not a huge fan of firearms in my fantasy, although uh, the Malazan Book of the Fallen series and Gardens of the Moon, the first book specifically, I think does a pretty good job of answering why. And so I'm going to give a huge spoiler for the end of that book. So stop listening to this message or skip ahead if you don't want it. Okay. Here I go, ready, go. So at the end of that book, explosives and gunpowder let what are basically like fifth level fighters take on and defeat what would probably be like a 20th level lich and it totally rules. Peace out. Hey, Josh Beckelheimer here. So I really enjoyed um, the way you were describing world building with your players. I mean, it really is the whole like dungeon world kind of style. And I love it, and and I like that you did it with uh, old school essentials, and I do the same. It's just fun. Your players are invested in the world, and it's no longer my world. It's our world, and that's what's great about it. Is this is our world? Let's explore this world together, because you know you can still ask those questions throughout multiple sessions of gameplay. So you both, the player and the GM, discover what this world is like as you play together. And there's no, there's like, I mean, everyone's surprised. You know, even the GM, you're like, oh man, that's great. That's cool that giants are this and this and that. And it's completely different than what we use, are used to. And I love that stuff. Uh, another thing I have uh, started doing recently is I'll, whenever characters are made or whatever, or maybe even before, I guess it doesn't really matter when you do it. But I'll ask everyone. Like, we'll go around the table or whatever, the virtual table. And I will be last, but I will say, everyone, tell one thing that we all know to be true about this world. You know, you take turns and then you say one if you're the GM at the end. And, like, I've had crazy stuff. Like, my wife said something about um, all the money in in this world. The currency is actually wood so then that you know that brings up questions of well are there trees 
is is wealth based on the amount of trees you have are all the trees gone like what does it look like does that mean there's no metal but who knows i mean it's just it brings up these crazy things and then the other thing i do right after that is we'll go around the table again but everyone will state one rumor that means everyone has heard this rumor and then I'll even state a rumor at the end. And then later, after, maybe not during the first session, because you, those rumors are just going to be hooks or whatever for future gaming. But, you know, after the first session or so, I will go and roll on, you know, these rumors and see if they're true or false. And then if they're true, develop develop them. And if they're false, what? how can I manipulate them to make it to where... It's kind of true, but false. You know, something where the players will still get some kind of stuff out of it if they followed that lead and not just a dead end. And one final thing, and uh, I think it's important. It's um, going around the table, possibly, and saying, okay, what do you not want in this game? For example, how you had your player, they talk about how they just don't want firearms. And again, that's perfectly fine. But I I think what more I'm meaning is what kind of content do you don't want? You know, because people might have crazy phobias. I don't not say crazy, but you know, people have phobias. And they might just get freaked out over certain things, and that's perfectly fine. You know, people don't like spiders. Like, fine, no giant spiders. Especially if everyone can agree at the table. I think that's important. It's going around the table and just saying, what do you not want? in the game world and content wise what are you trying to avoid what would you not want to see in this game and that's something that i think most people would agree on i know i said that in my next podcast i was going to talk about loose and tight designs but We played our superheroes game last Monday night and had a really good time. Finished up a short story arc that was the second of the ones that we've been playing since we started. And uh, had a really good Roses and Thorns sessions afterward, which I think, I don't know if you like to listen to these or not. You can certainly skip this one, but I think it brings out a number of points that are interesting. Uh, The first one is that when there's a time and place to sort of break a session in the middle, right? Like if... If, um, if things get really complicated or, well, there's, there's always cliffhangers, right? Which is, you know, if you're running up on time and you want to cliffhanger something, that's great. But there's also like in this case, we were, we were getting close to time, but more importantly, everybody was getting kind of frustrated by a particular problem. And so we just broke right there and we said, okay, we're just going to pick it up. It was literally mid combat. So, or mid action scene, if you will. So we broke in the middle of that scene and just kind of hung it there uh, for a week and let people kind of regroup mentally about, you know, to kind of step back and think what what's at stake in the situation and all that. So it was really cool to see what happened as a result of that. Uh, we talked about character advancement and how exploring exploring facets of your character within the game, how the system rewards it mechanically and encourages uh, advancement to go in the direction of the fiction, not, uh, so I just feel like one, one weird thing in D and D is kind of this, how each level just unlocks things. And all of a sudden you show up able to do something that you weren't able to do before. And 
a lot of players kind of address that by talking about training and downtime and whatnot. But in this game, you specifically try things. And actually, this is also true of my Sorcerers and Cell Swords game. You specifically try things and then uh, um, and you st- and they're more challenging when you try them. But then in advancement, you can sort of say, OK, I've tried that thing. Um, now I'm going to take it as a stunt. I figured out how to do it. And from there on, it's easier because you have done it in the fiction. Uh, you've shown yourself capable of doing that or at least attempting it. And and that's really cool. Uh, we talked about character callings quite a bit, which in this system is kind of an unsung uh, f- uh, facet of the system where each character has a, a, a driving force, you know, a phrase that kind of represents a driving force. JJ's is loss of humanity, and he plays this cyborg character who is struggling with, um, you know, is, he, is, is she human? Is she not human? Um what, how much, you know, how much human, if that's a quantifiable aspect, is she, um, uh, see Angus's character is an exemplar. Uh, Paul's character's, uh, calling was uncontrolled power and Dan's was protector. And I know, uh, for instance, especially on Dan, I really drilled him on that one this time because he was kind of struggling with understanding what to protect in a situation where a lot of things needed protecting. So I made him like focus that and say like, you know, what, what are you a protector of and how has that changed? And so we have these really great conversations about callings and that's something that I don't see in a lot of other systems. So I suppose maybe burning wheels beliefs uh, would, would fall in that same category. But uh, if you like that kind of thing, then here's our after session debrief. I guess one other thing I should say is the value of a roses and thorns, whether it's structured. I mean, we kind of get out of that roses and thorns structure quite a bit. We still call it that, but we don't usually the idea was you present one of each and then you get off of it. But um, we kind of have this debrief where we remember to say some positive things. We also remember to say some critical things so that we can improve. And uh, the allowing time at the end of every session, like leaving time for that, I feel like is really important uh, for me as a GM because I get a sense of how the game was. And for me as a player to tell the GM like um, where I'm dissatisfied with my own play or where I might want to see the campaign go if I'm feeling some shortcomings, but also to kind of reward people and say, man, I really liked it when you did that. And I didn't want to break the fiction at the time, but you know, to give them a pat on the back after the fact or to tell the GM, I really liked what you did this week. Um, You know, great prep or, or um, that character voice was amazing or whatever it is you want to tell them that kind of stuff's important, just breaking and then like going your separate ways leaves all those thoughts in people's heads and and doesn't make the most of them. So uh, without further ado, here is the Roses and Thorns session from our, I think this is our fourth or fifth time, fifth time playing the game. Okay, guys, so we finished our second adventure tonight. The first adventure we had was an art thief who was repatriating art for Jewish families who had been robbed by Nazis in World War II, and that was kind of fun. And then you were off to Brazil to investigate some missing scientists, one of whom was a long-lost acquaintance of, of Angus's character, Anbas, and ran into some trouble of an extraterrestrial variety. What did you what did you think of tonight? Any any roses or thorns? I got a rose, and that is I want to compliment all of my fellow players here in how in the second part, because we were kind of left off on a cliffhanger during last session, and we, we were struggling as a collective at times with regard to the pacing and exactly what to do. And I think we all came out all cylinders firing as far as taking action and pushing not only the fiction, but also the actions to then test you, 
Ray as narrator than to what this extraterrestrial, this blob would end up doing in response to our own actions. So from that standpoint, kudos to, to everyone with bringing it as far as the, their A-game was concerned and really getting creative. And a real tip of the hat there, not only to Geo in that escape out in the field, but then prior to that, Sam and uh, JG's character, the ingenuity there on how we went in and extracted that being that cocoon inside of the alien. That was pretty cool. I'm really, really happy that happened. That's like, as soon as we encountered this creature, that's the only thing I wanted to have happen is someone go inside of it. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Yes, yes, thank you. So Dan has volunteered to jump into a gelatinous cube if he ever plays D and D. That's right. <laughs> I have I, I have volunteered. I'll be a I'll be the first dead character in that session. <laughs> so I'm going to unpack it just real quickly. There was kind of a weird moral conundrum. You ran into this giant un blobby unformed alien baby thing, and it had it latched onto the one of the scientists as a like a surrogate mother, and it cocooned it inside of itself, which took you a while to to figure out naturally because the scientists couldn't talk or anything. And as we left it last session, we kind of stopped basically mid encounter because of timing. And because I think people are getting a little frustrated trying to figure out how to deal with like, okay, well, it's a baby. I don't necessarily want to tear apart a baby, even if it is an alien, giant alien, right? At the same time, we need to get in and get the scientist. And so tonight, it was kind of nice to have that break because I feel like tonight when you guys came back in, you were like ready to do something, right? Right. So that was good. It, it picked up pace. I felt like we weren't wrestling with the mechanics as much this time. I was getting easier with the cards, you know? You guys came up with some new stunts. That was great, like to add to your powers to kind of put more dimensions into your powers. So both UGO with your like, dust storm and, and um, Iron Maiden, JJ with turning body armor to like a life support for yourself so you could dive inside the alien without worrying about it. All that was all that was good stuff. I, I will be taking that stunt, by the way. Okay. <laughs> as part of your advancement, yeah. So I have a, a rose for the system sense that we what we get are these response bonuses at the end of an adventure and they equate to either the increase in skill you can gain a new skill you can increase an attribute or a power or you can gain a new stunt and i think that this very simple form of advancement gives players a real incentive to experiment and really push the limits of what you can do with your powers. I think the fact that the system's designed for you to have a power, which is a large umbrella of abilities, and then be able to do really cool things with it. Add those to your signature and really kind of flesh out what you, what your character is and differentiate your use of a particular power from somebody else's. Cool. I think there are very few systems out there that take this sort of approach to the superpowers game where you can really be flexible. And I think the only thorn I have is, you know, sometimes you have to play the hand you're dealt and there's not much you can do about it. Like when you have to play the Ten of Doom to ensure that your your action is going to succeed, but you know that that Ten of Doom card is going to come back and bite you in the end, and it did. It did come back to us, and we were, uh, Geo was very, very close to not succeeding and had to, I mean, it, it made it dramatic. I, I love that fact about it, but, you know, that's one of the things. Sometimes you just have to play the cards you're dealt, and it's not going to line up with something that you wanted to do the system definitely pushes you into a couple uncomfortable areas now and then and you can sort of 
take it and grow on it, which is what you guys did, or you can let it fluster you, right? And that's a, a challenging thing about the system. Not always an elegant thing about the system, but it is kind of a neat thing about the system. Yeah, I got on that topic, I have both a rose and a thorn. So there's a couple sides to this. So the, the thorn side is that I, I find, and I'm going <laughs> to phrase this so it doesn't sound like a thorn, but I find that uh, the card plays where you don't tell us like if it's going to be easy or challenging are more entertaining than the ones which you normally do than the ones where you say, okay, this is going to be an easy one or a challenging one. Or like there was an instance today where you're, where you said, you need more, you need more. But then there were, there was one instance, particularly at least a couple instances where, where uh, with my card plays where uh, you didn't do that. And I appreciated that you didn't do that because I had to make a decision as a, as a player playing these cards, how badly to, do I want to ensure that this succeeds? And for me, it was it was a little bit easier of a call, maybe, because I had the, the regeneration power. So I was like, okay, so I, I'm m most likely going to be recovering this damage. I think it's worth the risk to, to go ahead and push and add some extra uh, numbers out there. But I didn't know if it was easy or challenging. I, just, I had to use my own intuition to figure that out. And I like that, sort of both sides of that coin there. So Ray, as a point of clarification as we're all still learning the system, but getting a heck of a lot better through every session. If you continue to play cards, do you have to first exhaust your hand prior to drawing new cards? Or can you draw as you are playing cards? So uh, I don't know if we've covered this before or not, but when you take an action, you've got a couple different ways to play cards. You've got an edge which allows you to play very low numbered cards as kind of a, a little like degrees to prime the pump a little bit. And then you could, you play an action card, which could trigger Trump card draws from the top of the deck. And then you can actually push by playing another card out of your hand that you're not going to get to draw back, basically damaging yourself. Right. And you're asking like, okay, like when you play the edge card, do you draw right then? Do you play the action card and then draw right then? Do you play? And the answer is no, you got to play out your, you got to play what's in your hand. And then at the end of that, once we, when we resolve the action, that's basically when you draw back up. The rules aren't incredibly clear about the redraw kind of thing. And, and, and in general, the rules aren't incredibly clear. Let me just stop there. <laughs> they're, they're a little fuzzy here and there. This was a game that probably could have done with like, it was pushing the edge of the envelope. And I think it, it almost got out of control. You know, I'm not sure they quite knew how to explain it always or play tested it enough, but it is cool. It does some really neat things. It's like that are, again, both frustrating and fun. So like Dan mentioned, he's got a power called regeneration, which allows him in certain cases to draw back a card and damage reduces the number of cards in your hand. So there's this weird, I don't want to call it a death spiral, but as you take damage, your options are more limited, right? Because you, you might start with a hand of four cards, but then if you have to push and you take a damage, now you're down to three cards. So when you draw back up, you only draw up to three. And if you get hurt, you might lose another card. And now you've got two. And you're looking for things like trump cards or high numbers or non-doom cards. And if you don't have them, then your options are you have to get creative about what you play. So that's a good thing and a bad thing. It can sometimes be a little frustrating because you're like, okay, well, the obvious thing to do here, I need a strength card for, but I don't I don't have a strength card, so I'm going to have to, you know, come up with something completely different. Hey, do you want to talk about the change we made to the the combat order or the combat round, how we were handling that? Uh, I don't know. I think we kind of came full circle on it, honestly. 
we're almost back to the way that the book says to do it, but with a little bit more streamlining. We've tried several different ways to make it feel elegant, and I don't know if it was inelegant because we weren't good at playing it or because we were trying to bring in too many angles. But yeah, I feel like it's I felt like it's smooth tonight, pretty smooth. I think the biggest thing is letting everybody play their cards at once and then allow it because that allows me as a narrator to kind of time it out in a way that makes sense rather than trying to resolve one thing at a time. So one thing I would offer here is it's it's a minor change to what we're already doing and it goes to Angus's question is that after all the players have declared what their characters are doing and we've done all the card play once that reaches the point where it, the villains are about to do it then i think would be a good point to everybody just redraw the villains well i'm saying we, we just do it as procedure right as opposed to like doing it at the end of your action like make sure everybody plays out all of the player actions then redraw villain actions and then contingent actions and then we get that rhythm then of okay the new the new narrator card and i and this is another rose is i really liked your use of the narrator cards this this session you had two key ones at the end here where i think they had a major impact on the way things played out and you actually were using the cards as oracles to see how things were going to resolve and I, I don't know what was your thought about using that. I really enjoyed it, but for, as a GM, what, what did you think about it? Oh, that's what, I, that's what I'm looking for from the cards. That's one of the things I like the best about the system. So when I get a card that I can't figure out, it bothers me, right? Like, so tonight was great because like we had two or three cards in a row. I'm like, oh yeah, I know what to do with that. Oh, that's a great idea. You know, like where I was letting it really steer. The other thing I love about the kind of Oracle play is as a GM, I don't want to know how the story is going to go either. Like, I like to be surprised and see how things are. Uh, the, in Dungeon World, they say play to find out. That's what I like to do. I want to know. Like, so in this case, I had different ideas about how things might go. You've got this baby alien. Are the parents looking for it, right? Are there alien parents out there looking for it? And I thought that was a possibility. But then I had a card that said dramatic entrance. And I'm like, and you guys were in real trouble because you just pulled out the cocoon and the baby was going ape shit because that was its surrogate mother and was it wanted it back, right? And so then you got this this saucer that comes in. I and mean, it wasn't a good thing or a bad thing. It was just like another element, right? But it we had dramatic entrance and then yeah. So so there was a couple of those the cards that just really I felt like to me made it more fun for me tonight and hopefully more fun for you because it was the story was turning right it, it provides little like twists and turns to the story that might not be there otherwise yeah i think it played really well to the you know to the 70s motif that we were shooting for in the beginning it's like you know we, we have more questions at the end of the adventure than we do answers that's what happens when you brush the unknown paul aka shadow stalker you were the guy that always got beat up in this campaign i made a joke at one point that you were the rockford of, of rockford files in our, our little group because you seemed to like take all the damage was that frustrating for you or did you like that part or what what would you think about tonight as a thorn part of it it's frustrating because it seemed like even in the first session that my character was taking a brunt of the damage but maybe that was because of my choices in play of what I was doing. So that's that's part of the consequence of doing what I was doing. I think there's a couple of things that's a natural outgrowth of your character, right? Like, for one thing, you're unlucky, which allows me to draw two cards at the beginning of a scenario and choose the one that's the worst or that I, that I like the best. The other thing is, like, you're a, you're a mental hero. Like, you 
turn invisible and you ESP and stuff like that. You're not a, a hard knocks kind of character, but you end up being, you end up putting yourself right in the mix, which is cool. So I kind of, I kind of enjoyed the part where you got beat up, but maybe you didn't as much. <laughs> right. It, it, it's frustrating, but in the other sense, the, the Rose part of that is it also made it to where I relied on the other characters in my group to pick up where either I was unable to finish something or as uh, Geo was able to actually, through card play, heal my character. And then with his abilities, able to regenerate his cards. So it worked out with how the game mechanics worked out. You're a good-natured player, right? Like, you're good-natured about it, which makes it fun. Right. I Personally, it was, like I said, maybe a little annoying, but overall, game-wise, it fit in, so it worked. It opened up some interesting opportunities for, for Geo, my character. Right. I'm just hoping maybe future sessions for you guys that someone else can take the beating. Someone maybe of those other two that have four cards and can spare a little. <laughs> For, for what it's worth, I, I always wanted to be taking the damage. Yeah, that, that's a nice compliment, actually, to have the smaller hand but have the regeneration. So you're constantly turning your hand over a lot faster. You also, it kind of works neat in your protector role, which is uh, something we didn't talk about much and haven't used a whole lot, but there's callings on each character. So Sam, Iron Maiden, who's played by JJ, is a cyborg character, and her calling is Vestige of Humanity. So JJ does a great job of kind of bringing in little elements to try to uh, explore the idea of... So there were two things tonight towards the end. You, you did a number of things, but there were two things tonight towards the end that I thought were good. One of them was we had rescued this female scientist, and so JJ, the player, made a point that his character, Iron Maiden, was watching this female scientist and kind of unconsciously imitating things that she was doing, like running her hands through her hair and stuff like that to kind of... Because it, out of this desire to be human. The other thing that was kind of cool was I had asked you, JJ, you came up with a new stunt for your character and this one, which was that... one well, my trying to say life support stunt and i'd ask you like okay so this is a new thing that you can do that isn't human are you more scared of the fact that it removes you further from humanity or excited by what you could do with it you know and so that made for because you're calling that made an interesting question and you gave an interesting answer i thought i think the calling is really one of the unsung pros of this game is that it's so much more than just alignment and it's so much more than just an archetype but you can look to other heroes that have this and you know embrace it or accentuate it and really really kind of bring it to the center and i just find it makes it real easy then to know what the character wants to do unlike alignment it makes a really nice knob not at all like D alignment it's much more of a core belief kind of deal that you can work with and Paul's character is Shadowstalker is driven by this. His his calling is uncontrolled power. So he's having he has trouble controlling his powers and it's come up several times where, you know, like and even tonight, like he's he's going to be a, a guest player for us. He's not always going to be with us as a player. And so tonight we asked him, like we knew he wasn't going to be here next week. We asked him, like, you know, what, do you, what what causes you to drift away? And it was this search for a group that could help him control his power. So it gives you fictional handles to work with. You've got Angus, who's an exemplar and just an overall know-it-all. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've chosen to use that exemplar in constantly feeling the burden of having to learn because my character isn't immortal. So as it's described here in the book, not the immortal, but the exemplar, your hero feels he or she symbolizes a race, class, historical legacy, or subgroup that needs greater visibility. He or she seeks a high profile, but not personal notoriety. So it's one of, with me being this immortal, I'm constantly learning. My burden to the group is to bestow my knowledge and to constantly help the group in that regard. So some of the mortals may consider that a know-it-all. I, however, consider that a burden. And therefore, I, I shall carry that with me. It's almost like a live-by-example witness kind of calling. Sorry, Paul. What were you going to say? That's all right. I consider that the uh, Sean Connery character in the second Highlander movie. There can be only one. Who's coming to take your head? I don't even know what you're talking about. There was only one Highlander movie. What, just get out of here with that. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even seen the second one. Maybe it's good. I don't know. And uh, Geo slash Dan, I really pushed you a little bit on your calling tonight because your calling's protector and you got into a situation where there are all kinds of things you could have protected. And I was like, what, what are you a protector of? Like, you know, like boil, boil it down for me, which I think was good for you to think about. And you, you came up with some good stuff. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think I went the cliche route, but I think it, it fits the character. I don't think you went the cliche route. In fact, because you're an earthbender, essentially as a character, like you have earth powers. And we joked around in the first uh, in the first session that you joined us where, where you said, I'm not a hippie, right? Like I'm not, not a defender. But I think, I, I think we were trying to push you to like be an earth defender. And you were like, I'm not Captain Planet, you know? And so you, you'd have found what you, your defensive, your defender or protector nature is that you, you originally started out kind of like want to be a protector of the week. And then now you've, with this alien brush, you kind of realize that you're just a protector of humanity as a whole. Like you have love for humanity as a whole. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I kind of am relating it to the Marvel movies where like each, each individual superhero, most part, they were protecting their people. Their most cases, they're like protecting the weak or and defenseless. And then as you know, the, the battle of of New York came about and things got a little bit more crazy and wow now we got people from outer space that are real threats that kind of brought into uh, just you know the, these weakened defenseless to now it's like wow okay now we got to protect everyone I think that's kind of what's going through Gia's mind right now it, just realizing the events of today's session and seeing this UFO and so I, I could see Gia's mind sort of bending to that and thinking that hey there's more out there than 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 what i've been seeing that's a great take elevated your game right like you originally thought of just the weak and the poor but now you've broadened the spectrum to life in general of a not just one small sector but the overall well-being of humanity yeah he's just realizing that there's threats beyond what he's been fighting that are, that are more maybe real to him uh, at this point being uh, of nature right on any other thoughts we got a lot out there i felt like it was a good night i've i, I felt like i feel really lucky to have you guys as players i felt like we've had two good like mini adventures the, the first one was really fun but a little bit more cerebral and kind of a whodunit this one was more action-packed and, and 
weird in a fun way. And I enjoyed them both. And I feel like we're hitting our tone that we wanted to hit pretty well. That kind of 70s, you know, cross between Mission Impossible and Kolchak the Night Stalker, right? What, do you, what are your thoughts on how the fiction's playing out? I'll say from a comic book enthusiast standpoint, some of this play, particularly tonight, I could see a Jack Kirby drawing of this alien when he was doing monsters and aliens back in the late 50s, early 60s, right before the Silver Age booming. As a matter of fact, this could have been something right out of a Fantastic Four comic book, an early one at that. And from that standpoint, the action and everything was great, felt like a superhero game for sure. And for us, having, again, chosen to have this take place all in the 70s, this unknown nature of this stuff is really cool. Even even to the very end in, in how this particular encounter finished up and you know the, the remnants of the stuff being uh, lifted to Area 51 for further study. I thought it was just, it was great. It's, you know, typically what the government would do, you know, back in the days, oh, we don't know what this is. All we can do is hope to contain it. Let's box it up, boys, and get it out of here. So that was pretty cool. So I, I'll challenge you on that one, Angus. I think actually our first adventure was more because it was more investigative that it was more of a, a Johnny Ramota, just kind of right, you know, just, just very straightforward, you know, not a lot of flashy stuff, but when it came to the action, you know, there was some, there was some good action going on, but then this one with the, the mystery in the jungle and the, and the oddly mutated life forms, I think this had Ditko all over it. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. And since I'm a big Ditko fan, absolutely, absolutely. Ditko would have done something way, Way, way out there like this, for sure. I was pretty apprehensive uh, because I wasn't part of uh, session zero, but walking into session one and hearing that, okay, it's the 70s and this and that and the other. And I'm like, I'm not 70s. I was born in 81. So now everyone knows how old I am. And I just, I was never a fan of the 70s era or anything like that. So it's just, I was apprehensive. But I got to say, after, you know, we've done what, four sessions now? I couldn't be happier. This has been a really, really cool experience. Yeah, I think it was telling. Not having you in session zero was uh, hurt us some, right? It's a, I, I felt bad about that because you didn't get as much chance to kind of invest early on. But so I'm glad you I'm glad it's kind of come around now. Yeah. I, I don't know if it hurt us, but I, I did feel bad for missing that session. Yeah. I was saying I, I've kind of felt bad for having it without you. Like, so it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit of both, right? I'm glad we went ahead with it, but yeah, I, I'm glad we've uh, gotten some chance for you to kind of invest in the setting and add some things to it that have made it interesting. Yeah, me too. All right, fellas. Thanks again for playing. Great night. And that's it for this Plundergrounds. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you to Logan Howard for my awesome theme song. And hope you all have a great week. Look out for those rest monsters.